think like, yeah, swing big. Cause every time you hit a home run, there's like 10 more bands that get to run in behind you. And that's awesome. And when we did it, that was my joy at the end of that record cycle was being like, look at how many more queer artists are there. Look at how diverse our bills have gotten. Look at how much more queer artists streaming on Spotify. You know, like we saw all of that. It wasn't solely because of us, but it's like, yeah, we swung big. We hit a homer. It was awesome. But when I got to back to the bench, I was like, maybe I want to stay on the bench for a bit. And everyone's like, get back out there. Like you own the team now. Like, you know, like you're, just, <laughs> you're just like, no, it's so stressful. It's so stressful. But I think Crybaby is still the reason why I call it, sorry to cut you off, Sarah, the reason why I called it a sister record to Heartthrob is because it's still a big swing. It's still really different. It's still our 10th album. It's still us in our 40s saying, no, we are fucking relevant and we are cool and you're still going to listen to us. And we've got all these other projects going, like we're not slowing down, but we are engaging differently with the music and we're engaging differently with the industry and internally we're setting different goalposts. That was Tegan and Sarah. And this is Shiro's, a podcast with a mission to turn up the volume of women's voices in music across genres and generations. I'm Carmel Holt, and what you're about to hear is a previously aired interview from my syndicated public radio show, She Rose Radio. She Rose is a deep dive into the experiences and perspectives of women and gender expansive folks in a still overwhelmingly male-dominated music industry. It's a space where we discuss the challenges and triumphs, how far we've come, and how far we still have to go. Telling our stories is the first step to making music a better space for everyone. Just a few weeks ago, Tegan and Sarah were here on the show to guest host an interview with one of their high school musical sheroes, Ani DeFranco, which was some amazing timing leading up to the premiere of their new TV show based on their memoir, High School. And now Tegan and Sarah are back with their 10th studio album and first in six years, Cry Baby. Those have not been idle years by any stretch. And if you're a fan, you know they always have something happening. Too much to list here, but for those not familiar, Tegan and Sarah Quinn are are Canadian identical twin sisters who began writing songs in their early teens and released their debut under Feet Like Ours in 1999. Within a year, they were signed to Neil Young's label Vapor Records, who put out their second proper album, This Business of Art, in 2000. And as it was rare in those days for artists to be openly queer, Tegan and Sarah became trailblazers for LGBTQ musicians. It was incredible to witness their career as Tegan and Sarah take off. And it was their fourth album, 2000. So Jealous that truly put them on the international map, helped along by the White Stripes covering the song Walking with a Ghost. And while their 2007 fifth album, The Con, is often name-checked by many as their most iconic, it was their seventh release, Heartthrob, that became their biggest album to date. It's the 10th anniversary of that album this year, and as you're about to hear, their new album, Cry Baby, could be its sister. I'm thrilled to welcome back Tegan and Sarah as Shiro's in in the spotlight. Deacon and Sarah, welcome to Shiro's Radio. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh my God. Thank you for having us. We're very excited to be here. I'm so excited for the new album. Congratulations. Thank <laughs> album you. Album 10. Whoa, that's bananas. <laughs> that's crazy even for me. I've been a fan since <laughs> way back. So yeah. It's a, whoa. It's kind of it's a definitely... weird thing where it seems like we should have more albums. Do you know what I mean? Like, we've, I feel like we've been around for so long. I'm like, is it only 10? I thought we were more prolific. But then on the other hand, I'm like, I can't believe we've made 10 albums. 
that's so crazy. Yeah, but that's not even counting all of the other it's things true. that you've made that go with the albums. So, and it's then true. the compilations and the covers of yourself. Yeah, so <laughs> you're good. Crybaby is the new album. It's your first studio record in six years. I think a great place to start actually is with the title. I know that that's sort of a generica thing to do, but I've been talking to a lot of artists who made records in the past couple of years and so much is about vulnerability. I mean, it's right up front. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not subtle. It's definitely the more acute um, Mm. vulnerability that probably a lot of people have felt at times during this bizarre set of years. I mean, I think for myself and for Tegan, I think of us as musicians and recording artists and storytellers, whatever word you want to use. But really, ultimately, I think we have been for almost 25 years touring artists. And the fact that we could not tour and play shows for what will essentially be three years was really profound. And the ambient effect of that was personal and professional. There were some really wonderful things, some very restful things that happened during that period of time that allowed us to be extremely creative and also branch out into some areas of creativity that have been really satisfying and exciting. And then there was also a lot of things that happened in our relationship as sisters, but in our relationship as a band with some of our collaborators and partners in the music industry, that was really, really huge. Like leaving our management team that we've been with for 18 years, leaving our record label, who have been our recording music partners since 2006 on our album, The Con. Those relationships dissolved amicably, but still to sort of find ourselves in such uncharted territory certainly set us up to write an album that, as you said, is quite vulnerable. And we needed a title that could capture that and hopefully wasn't too specific, but then also wasn't too vague. And I definitely was the one who was pitching Tegan hard on this idea of Crybaby really early on for a couple of different reasons. But we didn't fight. We we didn't have a lot of conversation with this album about titles. We had a real short list. And thankfully, we both agreed that Crybaby kind of was was the one that was the zinger in the pile that was allowing us to both feel like we had a way to conceptually talk about the themes on the record in a concise way. So do you want to expand on that? Yeah, a big part of why I was thinking a lot about Crybaby as a sort of idea on one hand was because a lot of the songs on this album, I was writing about the IVF process that my partner and I were going through that was certainly derailed by the pandemic. But then over the course of the pandemic, we were able to get pregnant and now have a baby. And I'm a parent. Tegan is an aunt. And Mazel tov. There's a lot of crying in our lives, mostly joyful or related to gas, thankfully. Uh, <laughs> Sid arrived in the world happy and healthy, and it's just been a really wonderful experience. But the album sort of captures that disorientation and searching, at least for me, for what will the next part of my life look like as a parent and as a grown-up? And what is my life in this band and outside of this band? And I was just thinking a lot about those big ideas. You know, when everything in your world shifts underneath you, there's good and bad that comes out of that. And so Crybaby is kind of a winking for me anyway, toward the idea of having a baby and fertility and this big change and the emotional turmoil that I was going through. Well, congratulations. <laughs> and I'm so happy to talk to you about that and to hear about it because it's interesting to get to talk to a woman that's married to another woman mm-hmm. making that choice. We don't get to have that conversation enough. I think that's a huge part of why I have, I've definitely shared this with Tegan and I definitely have talked about it with my partner, but there's always this nervousness about like, oh, how much of my personal life do I really want to talk about? And my partner is 
it's amazing. We've been together 12 years. Tegan is married and has a wonderful, amazing partner that she's been with for the last seven years. And it's not that we don't think that those parts of our life are intriguing or, or we don't want to share them, but there's this fine line of visibility and being open about who you are. And then also keeping stuff for yourself and also being consensual about like, look, I love Stacy and Stacy's proud to be my partner, but like, I don't know that she wants to be on blast. She's not a public person. And so you, right. you know, it's a complicated thing. But then I also, I think Tegan and I are well known as business women and women who've been now in the business for over 20 years. And I think parenthood in that context and that framework, especially as a queer woman, I've made that choice that I really want to be able to talk about it. And Tegan's been really supportive of that because I, I do think it's something that we have less of and less conversation about. And also I'm not the parent who carried. I'm also in this other unique role that has felt a bit ambiguous, which is I'm not a mother in the sense of like pregnancy, that role and that sort of visual and storytelling. There's a lot more access to that version of parenthood. And right, the I, physical, so, the physical and like queer or not, you know, like I think that's a really specific thing. And I've sort of felt a little bit like I joke around that I'm in the dad role, but like, I'm not a dad, you know, I'm a mom. I'm not the caring parent and I've been supporting my wife through this process, but like, it's also a very unique position to be in. And then to think about how that fits into the framework of touring and being a touring musician and in the Tegan and Sarah world. And yeah, so it's complicated. And I feel like it's an interesting thing to try to talk about, especially in this day and age where it seems like, again, we're awash in anti-LGBTQ legislation movements and I'm not trying to pick on the states, but it's just like this constant need to roll back the rights advances of women. <laughs> and yeah, rights of women, advances that we've all made as queer people, as women. And I think there's no reason to stay quiet about something that I I think is actually literally an affront to a lot of people in the world. And I want people to see it and see it as being very normalized. Poor Tegan. She's like, Tegan, are you, do you want to say anything about becoming an aunt? Have you had any enlightened moments yet? It's definitely... She's like, yeah, I don't want to have a baby. That's what I yeah. learned. <laughs> yeah. You know what? And that's so valid to talk about too. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, you know, I had a period of my life where I thought kids seemed like an interesting prospect, but it came out of that period without a child and I'm glad for it. But I got a dog during COVID. And <laughs> Congratulations on that too. Yeah. And that's a lot. And I love being an aunt. I love being able to give the baby back and go home. But I also love <laughs> the after effects of what a kid has done. And I've seen it time and time again with my friends and now seeing it with Sarah, even just in the few weeks that has been with us, you reprioritize, you reorganize. And it's cliche to say, and as certainly as women who entered their forties during COVID, it's a thing we talk about a lot. I remember when I turned 30 journalists being like, so are you guys going to settle down and slow down and stop touring? And you find it so offensive, but then it's weird because you get to a certain age where you're like, you know what I want to do? I want to kind of slow down and I want to do a little less touring. For us, it happened a decade later, but- Wait, I'm sorry, but do they say that to men? I no. No, they don't say that to men. Just making men, sure that we clarify. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely don't think they say that to men. And the focus of a new record for, for a man who just had a kid, it would be like, oh, you had a kid cold. No one cares. And like, you know, I also appreciate that some of my male friends who have kids, you can see they almost feel self-conscious talking about their kid because they're like, who's going to care? Whereas I think with women, we really own it. But I was just going to say that I think Sarah and I have reprioritized things and we've changed things up in the last few years. And to me, that's what Cry Baby was really about, was the growing pains of acknowledging that we have this really amazing career and I love it, but I don't want to have to work as hard on certain things. Like I don't want to tour for 18 months to two years anymore. I find it extremely devastating to my body and my mental health and my life to have to spend 
eight months of every year away from my family and away from my home and on a bus with other adults. And, you know, we've been chronically sick for 20 years. It's funny. COVID is so strange to me because like I had COVID and I was extremely lucky because it was mild and my symptoms only lasted about a month and then I was back to normal. But like the idea that we would not tour because we got COVID if it was mild is wild to me. I've toured with whooping cough. I've toured with strep throat. I've toured with ear and eye infections. I've been on steroids because I've had, you know, colds and coughs and ear infections that have lasted for months. Like you just play through everything. I've played through food poisoning. I've, you know, like you just, you just go. But COVID seems like this physical reminder that you don't have to do that. We don't have to tour all the time. We don't have to beat our bodies up. We don't have to leave and abandon our lives for years at a time to make art. And so for me, Crybaby is the story of those growing pains of still being a very, very creative, ambitious person who wants to make things and tell stories and change the world and collaborate with Sarah and move Tegan and Sarah forward and take risks. But it hurts because there's certain things we just can't do anymore. And there's certain things that we want to do that we're shut out of. And like when Sarah pitched me Crybaby, I really resonated with all the reasons why she wanted the title. But for me, it's sort of the sister record to Heartthrob. And Heartthrob for us, like I saw that word on a piece of paper and I pitched it to Sarah because I thought this is a word that's mainly attached to men. Women never get called Heartthrobs. And I love the idea of us appropriating Heartthrob as women, especially as queer women and making a record because it's a record about lust and love. And we were pop all of a sudden and it felt really powerful. And crybaby feels the same. It's a word that's often associated with children or whiners or complainers, but crying is so powerful and being in touch with your emotions is so powerful. And this idea that COVID brought us all to our knees and made us vulnerable, like it felt like a title that really summed up my part of the record and the songs that I was writing about those growing pains. So Yeah. And I'm just like super curious to see what Sid, Sarah's baby, does to our band. Like, what does it do to- Oh, he's about to fuck it up. Yeah. Like, (laughs) how do we tour? How do we stay healthy? (laughs) What becomes a priority as he gets a little older? How do we still exist? Like, it's going to be really interesting. I think Tegan and Sarah as a band, you know, you started this interview by saying like 10 records. And it's like, yeah, 10 records in 25 years. You know, we've been making music since we were teenagers and most bands don't have the luxury of doing that. They break up for whatever reason. And Sarah and I can't really break up. We're identical twins. We're collaborators in so many other areas, books and television and graphic novels and soundtracks. And it's not easy. I remember being in a coffee shop a couple of years ago, like crying to one of my managers and this (laughs) barista came over at the end of her shift and gave me a note and it said, you can always quit. Because I kept being like, I can't quit. You know, how do you quit being in a band with your sister? But I think Sarah and I are just trying to figure out how to be happy and collaborate and do all the things. And this album is just part of that story. And if you're just getting on board now or you've been around for five years or 10 years or all 25 years, this is just that next chapter in the Tegan and Sarah story of like how two adults navigate a world together, which is really unusual. Most people grow up and they leave their families and they move on from their siblings. And we don't do that. We still exist as if we're teenagers. And so this story will always come back fundamentally to the core of of what Tegan and Sarah is, which is 
siblings trying to give each other enough time to explore how they're navigating the world. And not just siblings, but twins, which is a really specific, (laughs) different (laughs) Very specific. Let's go to a song here. Does it make sense to play Under My Control where the album title comes from? Yeah, yeah. Actually, that song, I often feel quite indifferent about my music and I'm always comfortable to let Tegan weigh in and somehow this one slipped through the cracks. And right before we were about to go record with John Congleton down in Los Angeles, Tegan somehow came upon this song in one of my emails and was like, wait, what the fuck? Like, why aren't we recording this? <laughs> and Sarah um, was like, oh no, I wrote it early on and I'm over it and it doesn't. And I was like, no, 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 this is a banger. Like this song <laughs> is in my head all the time. To me, it's definitely one of the sleeper hits on the album. So I'm glad you're playing it. I hope people don't miss it because this is classic Tegan and Sarah. I used to cry. and Sarah here with us on Shiro's Radio. Track nine, Under My Control. That's where the title of this album comes from, Cry Baby. So I know that there's also some firsts about how you approached this record. Do you want to speak to that a little bit, Tegan? Yeah, you know, through the pandemic, Sarah and I would go on Instagram Live every week. We had a funny show called Where Does the Good Grow? Because Sarah had a backyard at the time. So she would sit in the backyard and talk about her plants and we'd have a cocktail, you know, Friday afternoons. One of our conversations one week was just about creativity and how our creativity has changed, how our collaboration has changed over the years. And I felt that Sarah didn't give me enough feedback. We just had this like really interesting conversation. It's up on YouTube if anyone's ever interested in going to look for it. But for me, the takeaway was that Sarah didn't trust that I could give her feedback on her songs, that maybe she didn't trust me to know what was good anymore and that maybe I shouldn't trust her to know. And I I mean, I was caught off guard by that, but it inspired a conversation between us that continued after we got off the Instagram live. We were interviewing managers at the time and we started to solicit feedback and ask people more questions about what makes Tegan and Sarah, Tegan and Sarah, what makes our songs good. And there's just one manager in particular who really glommed onto all I wanted and I can't grow up to early songs of Sarah's that she demoed when we started to write the record. And he was like, my opinion, head that direction. Those songs are so fresh. They're so different. So I made a conscious choice to just be really collaborative with Sarah. Like all the songs on the record needed to go through the factory of Sarah and her production. And so I started to just send Sarah partial ideas and she started to collaborate with me in a way we never have. She started to build tracks for me, give me feedback on the melodies and the arrangements. And then I would re-sing it and rewrite certain sections, set it back to her and she would do a new version. And it was sort of like we made the record, the two of us, and then collaborated with John Congleton and went in and actually made the record. But it was the first time we've really ever done that. You know, usually we just submit songs to each other and we either like them or don't. And then we have a pile at the end and go make an album. And this time it was very much in Sarah's hands. I'm not setting us up so that if the record's a bomb, I can be like, well, it was Sarah's baby. So uh, literally. <laughs> literally. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, it was truly like those songs, all I wanted and I can't grow up are just brutally brilliant and strong, melodically really interesting, really unconventional, you know, just have this hyper energetic feel to them. And I was calling it, I was in a country K-hole 
I was writing country chords, was living in this cabin on a remote island and was just making kind of sad songs. And Sarah would just take them and renovate is I believe how Sarah referred to it and update the songs to feel like they could fit in the world Sarah was creating. I think the risk here in our relationship, and probably this is common in any relationship, marriage or collaborative or whatever, but when you really know someone, you can really eviscerate them with criticism. It almost is easier to take criticism from a stranger or from someone who has just been newly hired as a producer in your relationship. I think Tegan and I are really careful with the kind of feedback that we give each other because it cuts straight to the bone. You know, we're not reaching around in the dark. I know what Tegan's strengths are and I also know what her weaknesses are and I know what she relies on in order to achieve certain kinds of things in songs and asking her to perform outside of that comfort zone is complicated. And I think you have to be in the right place to be able to receive that. And thankfully, whatever circumstances allowed for that, you know, I got that opportunity. And if the record is a bomb and it gets terrible reviews, I probably will feel really responsible because Tegan moved herself closer to where I wanted to be on this album. These were more of my whims. And But to be fair, like that was the thing is that those songs were so good. You and I don't replicate each other's music. You didn't send me Walking with a Ghost, so then I wrote a walk no, in with a ghost. Yeah. So you said all I wanted and I can't grow up. And I thought, man, these are so good. I don't know how to make those. Like, yeah. I don't know how to do that. And your songs were so good. I didn't even feel like I was trying to like turn them into doing what I was doing. But I will say that the way I heard your first demos for this album, I felt there was life force missing or like energy missing. And you would say the thing about like, I'm in a country K-hole, but I was like, we got to like get the jumper cables out of the back of the car and put them on your songs. And let's just see what happens if we just vault them a little bit. And some of it was lyrical. I mean, Tegan and I have argued about lyrics our whole career. And Tegan has this very universal way of speaking. And that's why her songs are so much more popular than mine for the most part. And I also think that's why she's often more popular in anything that we do where it requires a voice and narrative, which is fine. And I sort of like being the more cerebral or more opaque one in the band. I'm fine with that. I like that balance. But there's just sometimes with certain lyrics, I'll just really like get on Tegan about it. Like, come on, this is lazy. You've said this before. In fact, with these songs, most often when I went back and looked at the emails in our correspondence, I think what I actually was asking Tegan to do was to be more clear. Are you sure this is what you're trying to say? Here's what I think you're trying to say, or here's what I think people are going to think you're trying to say. Can you say it differently? Or can you go deeper? Can you be more vulnerable? Can you use a different perspective so that I don't feel like I'm listening to a song that you've written before? And that really truly is like why this album feels different to me. You know, I don't know if the average Tegan and Sarah fan is going to listen and hear all of that, but that really was what went into making this record, which was really, Mm. you know, a totally different trusting emotional kind of landscape than we've had on previous albums. Can you give us an example of one of those songs? Yeah, like the song that sticks out to me the most is probably going to be like a very deep cut for a lot of people, but it's actually my favorite song Tegan wrote for the album. It's the album Closer. Whatever that was. Whatever that was. Yeah. When I heard this song, I really liked the vagueness, like the more I think about it, whatever that was. And I'm like, what is the was, you know? And I kind of liked how like, just like super casual, it kind of felt like a bit of a stoner song to me. And I remembered there was like at least twice as many lyrics in the song. And I was like, to me, the sentiment of the song was, I had like a, maybe a romance with someone, except that I was more invested in it than they were. And I used to think about it all the time and I didn't understand it. And now I just kind of know like, 
it, that's just what it was, you know, like, and I kind of liked how just like mm, slacker, like whatever, shrug it off kind of it was, but Tegan was doing all this extra work, you know, like there was all this like lyric information in the verses and the pre-choruses. And I would like go in and I would cut about half of that out and I would rejig it and I would send it back to Tegan. And then she would say, yeah, interesting. And then she'd say, well, take a listen to this. And she'd send it back to me. I swear to God with twice as many lyrics in it again. And I would just be like, Tegan, for fuck's sakes, don't do so much work for people. Let there be space. Let there be oxygen in this so that people can just hear it. Like, it's just, I don't know, it has just a chill vibe. And if you just give them all this storytelling, I think it actually does less than you think it does. And so she really let me get in there and chip away at it. And we've just never done that before. Like really just going in there like an editor, just like you can lose 50% of this. Been dragging around this town in a bad mood Feel like somebody died, baby, who's gonna save me? I guess I never really ever knew me at all And I guess I never thought about it till you were gone Feel like somebody died, baby, who's gonna save me? Whatever that was, that was the song, the closer <laughs> of Cry Baby. Tegan and Sarah, my guests today on She Rose Radio. I'm Carmel Holt, and we were talking about how Sarah really went in there and one might say even like brutally honestly just <laughs> dismantled a bunch of lyrics that Tegan had written, something you guys had never done before. And Tegan, you let her do it. What did you say? Renovating? Yeah. Sarah recently <laughs> called it renovating. I mean, I will say I think Sarah's always given me a lot of feedback about my music, but this was definitely much more deliberate and much more extensive and covered the whole record. In the past, when I wrote 19 or the con even, Sarah just was like, I love the song. Like that was it. So, mm -hmm. but with this record, there was not one song I submitted that she was like, great job. She was just like, okay, I've rebuilt the whole track. I've <laughs> sung it in a different key. It's a lot wow. faster. I've taken half the words out. And there was a back and forth where I would be like, okay, well, I still want this or I still miss that. But Tegan, um, I didn't do that to This Ain't Going Well. I thought that song was perfect. Oh, like, yeah, I remember this, when, yeah. When you sent me that song, like that's a great example of a Tegan song where like right at the last minute, John Congleton was like, Okay, right before we're going in to do our last session for the album, he's like, I still think we need another song. And I'm like thinking to myself like, oh, fuck, I don't know. I don't think I can pull it out. And Tegan just sends me, this ain't going well, just acoustically. And I'm like, you're annoying. You're an annoying person, you know, because she just like, it just, she, Tegan can work really well in those kinds of time crunch periods. She doesn't labor mm. over it. And if she can. Well, I also had, I mean. I had been really inspired. We'd been taking meetings with labels and one of the labels we'd met with just as a throwaway comment when we left, they'd only heard a couple songs. We weren't even done the record yet, but they suggested, oh, the guy ran a publishing company as well. And he said, you know, I always tell my writers to go in with comedians because comedians are great at like, you know, punching things up and like just summing up a thought in one sentence, you know? And I was like, okay. And I actually reached out to a few comedians and was like, okay, I'm writing the song and I'm looking for something about whatever. And like, Actually, as we all know, comedians are kind of dark. And so they were just sending these like really dramatic, like, but a few people that I sent comments to sent me back stuff, like just in conversation, you know, 
interesting things that I ended up littering through my songs on the record. But this mm. ain't going well specifically. A friend of mine and I were just chatting a lot because she was going through a breakup. It was bold of me, but I just like screenshot a few of our conversations as I said, can I use this? You know, I just found the way that she was articulating her breakup really resonated with me. And it really conjured up some memories for me of past things. So it was easy for me to write because, I mean, I said, do you want credit? Because, I mean, I've changed <laughs> a lot. But we joke, like, the other day she referred to it as our song. And I'm like, well, <laughs> but it's like sometimes for me, inspiration just comes from the strangest places. And for me, almost every song on this album came from conversations that I had with other people. And it would just be like, oh, I, that's what I'll write about. I do think for the most part on this record, it was Sarah's comments and critiques and edits that helped me get to the point where I could just turn in, you know, both faded like a feeling and this angle and well were like songs that by the time I sent them to Sarah, I, I felt like song-wise I'd finally hit my stride. This ain't going well, I wish that we had been a better version of us You can't love somebody who you didn't ever really trust As you're saying that to me about conversations with people, I'm thinking about this idea of like positive drama, that when things are actually kind of going well in your life, it can be really hard to find things to write about. <laughs> like, just like, what are you supposed to fucking write about? And so you kind of have to go. And I was look. just going to say you that to you. Yeah. Like you have to go out <laughs> and look for that shit. Whereas like, I admittedly, like I'm not going through a breakup. This is probably one of the first records that I wrote that is not about a breakup. I mean, I guess I've been joking that it's kind of like a record about me contemplating breaking up with Tegan, meaning like, where's our band? What is the future for us? You know, I've been thinking a lot about our career and like what comes next. But for me, really, the drama in my life over the last handful of years was about becoming a parent, thinking about like, you know, do I want to do this? Do I want to have a child? What happens if I do? What happens if I don't? Is my partner going to leave me? You know, and then also sort of digging into this idea of like, it is so easy to cling and stay in the sanctuary of this band and this world. It is so easy. I am in control of it. It's all I've known. It's all I've done. And entering parenthood is like this whole other universe. And it, it's positive drama. It was easy for me to write because I felt I was in some kind of turmoil. And I guess that to go back to what I was saying about Tegan's song, sometimes lacking that little bit of electricity, I think it's because Tegan was fucking happy. She's in her cabin. She's got her dog. She's like running around, like enjoying life. And I think whether or not that's like the full story or not, I wanted Tegan to dig deeper. And if digging deeper meant go and like poach some stories from some people in your social circle, like, fuck yeah, do whatever you need to do. That makes so much sense. And also not for nothing, but you turned 40 yeah. during this time. Yeah. It's not easy for women for our internal process, but also what society tells us. Like mm -hmm. your career's over when you turn fill in the blank. Yeah. yeah. I think we were lucky because... We went through turning 40 during the pandemic. So it felt like we were just in our lives celebrating with family and friends and off the road and weren't necessarily thinking about it in the context of our career. But now that we're back, technically our last 
big studio album came out in 2015 and we toured 2016 and 17 and you know, everything we've done in the last few years has been around our memoir and like, it's about nostalgia and, you know, we've got this TV show and graphic novels and now we're making a new album and signing a new record deal and new management. And it felt so hype and cool and big. And then when we really started to get into the logistics of like planning a tour and doing press and starting to talk to people and starting to hear that we're legacy artists now. And like, you know, and all these young queer acts are coming out with their albums. And I'm like, I don't want to compete with them and do that anymore. And, you know, age hit me, like, I feel like in the last two weeks where I was like, oh, like, right. When this record comes out, we're 42. It doesn't mean our career is over. We're really lucky. Somehow we've managed to stay relevant in enough circles and, you know, things are fine. Like, and I think we also we're touched luckily with genetics that allow us to still pass for like 35 or something, you know, depending on the light, maybe 30. <laughs> but in reality, you know, I admitted this to a friend the other day, I went through and muted so many bands on her Twitter feed because I love going to Twitter. I find it punishing, but I love going, but there's this whole crop of artists who I love. Nothing has changed for me about how much I love them. I want to continue to listen to their music, but what I don't need to see is them just doing all the things we've already done. Like the first time you sell out a club or the first time you go on a trip to Europe, I was like, oh God, it's nostalgia for me overload all the time. Cause then I immediately go, oh man, remember when we sold out our first tour? Or, oh man, remember the first time we flew to Europe? Or like, oh man, remember when we got to Frankfurt and our gear didn't come? Like, it's too much for me. I'm like literally living my own life again. And so, you know, age hit me all of a sudden where I'm like, right, I think I'm okay with like wandering around in Crocs at my cabin. And like, <laughs> and like, and like, wow, well, re- you're going to be that lesbian. Yeah, you? like wow. maybe, you know, like maybe, like I'm like, God, like I just, I mean, all we do is work. Like we have so many projects right now on the go, but like, I just mean, like I lived in LA for 12 years, the time of my life where I want to like go to art openings and concerts and events and be seen and know famous people. Like, I mean, I wasn't really ever like that, but like to a degree, you know, a lesser degree than most. But like when I lived there, that was my life. I was dating a photographer. She wanted to go out all the time. We had so many friends. We were very social. We were out all the time. Like now if I like do dinner two nights in a row, I feel like I need to be hospitalized. You know what I mean? And that's partly COVID, but it's also when you really like your life, I like my life. This is what I meant about like, we have to really think long and hard about how to promote our album, how to still be a relevant band. I don't want to start saying no to things. I just want to be creative about the things that we say yes to. And I want to make sure it's really smart because I do think Sarah and I have so much still to give. And I think we still have so many stories to tell and so many records to make and soundtracks to score and television shows to produce, like fine. But like, we need to do it in a way where we're also not doing 11 shows in a row, touring 286 days, touring through whooping cough. You know what I mean? Like we have to find balance. And I, I do think that that's where I've gotten to. And so even in the creative process, I didn't feel like I had to be in control of every moment of my songs. Like I didn't mind that Sarah was getting into it because I thought to myself, great, I spent six hours writing this version. Now you're going to spend a bunch of time and then you send it back to me. And that's time I didn't have to spend working on it and I can see it new and fresh. Like I don't want to be caught in the treads of like where I've been before, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And coming back around to something else that we've touched on, I think a few times is just about visibility and there can be this sense of responsibility to keep going so that young artists see you continuing to do what you do and you can stretch your hand back and bring them along and not have them go like, wow, look, see, see what happened. They hit this age and now they're done. They're done. Yeah, obsolete I mean, or whatever. Every story right now, like every 
narrative I see of artists, and this is nothing against the storytelling or the artists. So just let me say that. But like all these artists, women that are in the news right now that are our age or older, it's always the story of like, they disappeared. Why did they disappear? Well, the industry was fucking horrible nightmare landscape. So they obviously disappeared because like, thank God it's the Britney Spears story or it's the Sheryl Crow story or the our Alanis broke up or I was in a toxic relationship with the guy that was in the band and we broke up and his career is great. And I fucking had to go become a botanist. And so the other thing that I feel really confidently that is so different about me and Tegan is that like, look, have we been bumped around? Have we suffered a few traumas? Do we have a couple bruises? Sure. Like this industry is a fucking nightmare, but we are here and we've consistently made good work that we're excited about. We did not disappear ourselves. We did not retire. We were not kicked to the side. We are happy to exist somewhat in the margins from time to time. If that's, you know, where we belong, like that's fine too. We're happy to poke our heads into the mainstream every once in a while. Like I do think our story is different and I think we can be an example for artists who can look at their careers as marathons and not sprints and do not need to be yeah. the most popular and sell the most things and stream the most shit. Honestly, I'll just say it. The most successful times in our career were the times I was the most unhappy. They were the times where I felt the most drained, the least present, the most manipulated, <laughs> the most resentful. I'm not saying that's how it is for everyone. Some people thrive in that existence. I did not. I preferred... We didn't like being popular. We don't like being po that popular. <laughs> I like to be like sort no. of popular. I no, like but like I think about the end of Heartthrob, two years and endless touring, been around the world three times. So tiring. G get the call that we're going to get to go play on the Oscars. And I cried for like three days and was like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to us. <laughs> I was just like, because I was so nervous and so scared because that never goes away after 25 years. I'm always dreading having to do television. I hate social media. People tear us apart. It just feels so bad. Our parents are defensive. Ooh. Like I just, I could weep right now thinking about it even for our new record. It's like, it's so much pressure. It's so hard. And we were just so tired. And it's like, everyone talks about like, but you sold this many more records and you reached this many more people and your company made this much money, but it's like, yeah. And then there's more expenses and more loss and more compromise. And like Sarah said, you're manipulated all the time. You have other grown adults coming to you, telling you, you have to play this radio show or your whole career is over. And it's like, you're just angry. And it's like that Sarah's right. It's not everyone's story and not everyone feels this way when they get to this point, but a lot of people do. And with perspective, I look at other points in our career where we weren't quite as big or as popular, but I think, gosh, it was a little more creatively stimulating and satisfying. We had more control. We were more well-slept. You know, we were happier. And I'm still like, we definitely needed to do that. We had to go into the mainstream. Like, that was necessary. Like, people forget. Like, it was only 12 years ago, but like, there were no openly identified queer women on radio. And that was not okay with us. It was not okay that... People were like, you guys are so catchy, but you belong over here. It was like, fuck you. And that was a political move on our part to try to get into the mainstream. But once we did, I was like, yuck, no thank you. And, you know, <laughs> I love seeing like so many artists going for it right now and swinging big. You know, Muna's the big one right now. You know, they are aiming for mainstream radio. They are aiming for big venues. They want the big release and they should. They're like in their 20s. They can handle it. They're not as tired as we are. They should do it. We did it in our 30s. It was really hard. But I just think like, yeah, swing big. Because every time you hit a home run, there's like 10 more bands that get to run in behind you. And 
that's awesome. And when we did it, that was my joy at the end of that record cycle was being like, look at how many more queer artists are there. Look at how diverse our bills have gotten. Look at how much more queer artists streaming on Spotify. You know, like we saw all of that. It wasn't solely because of us, but it's like, yeah, we swung big. We hit a homer. It was awesome. But when I got to back to the bench, I was like, maybe I want to stay on the bench for a bit. And everyone's like, get back out there. Like you own the team now. Like, you know, like you're, just, <laughs> and you're just like, no, it's so stressful. It's so stressful. But, but I think Crybaby... I think Crybaby is still, the reason why I call it, sorry to cut you off, Sarah, the reason why I called it a sister record to Heartthrob is because it's still a big swing. It's still really different. It's still our 10th album. It's still us in our 40s saying, no, we are fucking relevant and we are cool and you're still going to listen to us. And we've got all these other projects going, like we're not slowing down, but we are engaging differently with the music and we're engaging differently with the industry and internally we're setting different goalposts. And it's a sister record in that way because it's still a big swing. There's still risk attached to it. Like at this point, everything we make is a risk because we could undo the legacy we have. But that's the only way I know how to make art is with risk. I agree with you to some degree that it's a big swing, but I think, you know, in saying like, I don't need to have the same kind of cutthroat ambition that I did when we put out Heartthrob. I don't need that to fill me up anymore. And, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe that goes back to this idea of parenthood and also of getting older. I guess what I meant to say, too, about in the times where we were the most successful, I hoped, and I think this is what I was aiming for, was that by achieving those goals and getting those things that I would feel better about myself. And I didn't. I felt the same. Sometimes I felt worse. And I was looking for acceptance and I was looking to be cool and I was looking to get good reviews and... I thought that that was going to make me feel like, you know, all those things that had hurt me in the past and all those things that I'd missed out on or felt like we'd missed out on because of whatever reason I thought, oh, like now that's going to fix all of it. And it just didn't. And so it allowed me um, to realize like, okay, there's a lot of work that has to be done here that has nothing to do with if Pitchfork likes your album. It has nothing to do with if you sold 2000 tickets or you sold 10,000 tickets. My self-worth and my happiness is just like not connected to that in the way that I thought it was. And like, I know that sounds like so cheesy, but it's true. It's just true. It's so true though. It's just true. And I, you know, I'm not saying that I don't feel bummed if we don't sell out a show right away, or if I don't think like, oh God, I I hope Yellow does really well, but like, maybe it won't. Like, of course I have some of my self-worth and value attached to these things, but it is the work itself that gives me value. It is the making of the thing that gives me a sense of purpose. It is the creative collaborations with Tegan and with John Congleton and with the video directors and the people around us. Like that is what makes me feel good. And when I'm enjoying those relationships and those collaborations, I'm my most happy. And I hope that yields success and monetary gains and all of those kinds of things. But I also realize now that like, it's not going to sink my self-esteem if this album is not a big album. It just won't because I enjoyed making it. Yeah. It's the difference between like identifying with things outside of yourself or working from the inside Mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. And those are two very different things. And there's got to be a little bit of a balance. It's a dance, you know, but it sounds like, I mean, I just kept thinking as both of you were talking as like the word that kept coming to my mind was intentionality. Like Mm -hmm. you're just getting very intentional about what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. Intentionality, like this mindfulness of like who you are again, like not to use all this woo woo language and you know, whatever, but writing the memoir was probably the most healing because I think the parts of me that were like injured and so insecure and so desperate for validation as a creative person and as a human, that stuff started in adolescence. And so getting to control that story, rewrite it, rethink it, recontextualize it, go to therapy, 
see it go out into the world and have this impact. Ugh, that was better than getting the Oscars. You know, like the Oscars made me feel like, you know, I jumped off the high diving board and I didn't die. But like writing the memoir made me feel like, well, I did some work and I really like, I feel better. I love little Sarah, little 15 year old Sarah. She's great. I've like really like embraced her. And, you know, I like give her a little hug, a little cuddle every once in a while when her voice gets a little bit too in my head and I start to feel insecure. But like that repair, you know, came from being creative. It didn't come from getting on a bestsellers list or from having somebody blurb our book or whatever. It just the work of writing it, the work of thinking about it, of going under the surface and being brave enough to like reimagine all of that, that is the thing that satisfies me as a creative person. And I'm looking forward to seeing what this new era of our band looks like in our 40s. And I want to be comfortable talking about it. I think we can still be relatable to the young people because young people are constantly talking about these things. It's part of why I feel like we are okay talking about these things is that people in their 20s are talking about their wellness and their health and their mental health. Those things, we didn't feel comfortable talking about those things in our 20s. Because we were afraid to be called whiners or to be called, you know, like I remember complaining a little bit about our first tour when I was like 20 years old. We had gone across Canada in February. It was like minus 20 on a Greyhound bus playing nightclubs. You know, it was like the brutalist tour. It was like the amazing race extreme or something. And I remember complaining to a journalist about how tired I was. And the journalist just wrote this scathing review, just being like, I have to sit on the phone and listen to this like whining brat who's like getting to tour and live this dream and Neil Young signed their band and she just eviscerated me anyways and by wow. product Tegan and I was 20 years old I was 20 years old and I was like on my this first tour that was so hard and I was just being honest and I learned real quick don't talk about those things with people they don't understand they think that you're living a rock star dream and you look entitled and you look ungrateful and so mm. I embodied that for 20 years. For 20 years, I was like, don't tell people you're sick. Don't tell people you're hurt. Don't tell people you don't know if you want to do this anymore. Don't tell people that you are deeply clinically depressed through much of your 20s and early 30s and don't do it. And now I'm like seeing people all the time do it. And I'm like, good for you, people. Like, Just fucking go ahead. It's a crisis hotline. Twitter, go ahead. Just tell us all the things, like whatever you need to, like get it out. Be seen, feel hurt. I think it's great. And I wish I'd been doing that in my 20s and 30s, but I wasn't. And now I feel like in my 40s, I want to be able to talk about this shit and feel like in sharing it, it can get better. When you were saying all that, I was thinking like, yeah, was basically the underlying message was don't be a crybaby. Don't be a crybaby. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for making that connection. I'm going to say that like for a lot of our career, it was like, don't be a crybaby. Don't be too emotional. Don't be too feminine. And it's like, actually, that's where the power is. Should we close with yellow? I'd love yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, this feels like all like a big story that ties into Yellow. Am I right? It Am does. I wrong? No, yeah. It does. yeah. No, I definitely think that song really touches on the overview of the trials and tribulations, the ups and the downs of being in this band and being a human being. And hopefully on the other side of the work that allowed us to get past some of those past pains and hurts and moving in a more positive future direction. Tegan and Sarah, it's been a blast to spend this time with you and an honor as well. Thank you so much and congratulations on Crybaby. Thank you. Thank you.
Many thanks once again to Tegan and Sarah for being with us. Their new album, Cry Baby, is available now on Mom and Pop Music. And the TV series, High School, is also out now on Amazon Prime's Freebie channel. She Rose is produced by me, is mixed and mastered by Kelly Drake. We get production assistance from Emma Philippos. Our original theme music is by Lucius. She Rose is also a nationally syndicated radio show. You can visit SheRoseRadio.com to find out more and support our work with Patreon or merch from the She Rose shop. Keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Carmel Holt or find us at Shiro's Radio. And please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. That helps us grow and bring you more Shiro's. Until next time, remember, music is our superpower. I'm Carmel Holt. Thanks for listening.